When I graduated from UCLA Medical School as a pediatrician in 1972, I was told if I had even one autistic child in my practice, it would be unusual. Today, most of my practice, 250 to 300 active patients at any time, is composed of children and young adults diagnosed on the autistic spectrum, something we were never prepared for in medical school. General pediatrician practices now have between 6 and 12 children on the spectrum or with significant learning difficulties. I have heard from parents that their pediatricians were as unprepared as I was for this onslaught. So how is it that in 30 years the rate of autism in American children has gone from non-existent to affecting nearly 1% of the total population or even higher? To understand this change, let me give you some history. After I failed handwriting in the third grade, my teacher joked that I should become a doctor. Growing up, I enjoyed math and science, liked working with people and children, and did not envision myself in a lab with test tubes, so medicine, and in particular pediatrics, became my goal. I was extremely thankful to be accepted into UCLA Medical School, and I remained thankful for the wonderful training for my internship and residency in pediatrics spent at Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center with rotations through Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. What I learned within these institutions gave me an excellent background in infectious disease, immunology, allergies, and more. The professors and the medical system to which I was exposed formed a dynamic, exciting system. There was still the expectation that a physician would use a combination of clinical skills and emerging technologies to help advance their understanding and take their research to new levels. Medicine was viewed as a frontier that needed to be consistently explored. This expectation was quickly dropped when it came to researching the causes of a rising disease called autism. I entered private practice in Tarzana, California, with optimism and excitement. I built the third largest pediatric practice in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. On a busy day, I could see up to 52 children. I would never let a sick child wait for an appointment if it were at all possible. I was taught preventive medicine in medical school. I was a good pediatrician if few children needed admittance to the hospital. The United States has evolved rapidly to a system where hospitals encourage admissions, however. Sadly, our collective health now boils down to dollars and cents. Back then, for example, the standard practice was to postpone immunization for a child if he or she had a cold or a fever. Parents would bring the child back for the shots once he or she was healthy. Economics now dictates that we limit visits. The more we bill at one time, the better, so let's vaccinate them with everything we can give them while they are here in the office, all in the name of efficiency. What new vaccines are being added to the roster of necessary childhood vaccinations, and why? How many readers are aware that the fairly recent decision by the Academy of Pediatrics in 1991 to give a hepatitis B vaccine in the newborn nursery, the most dangerous adjustment time in a baby's life, was not made on the rational basis of medical efficacy, but in large part due to the sticky issue of political correctness? It would not be PC to point out the limited number of cases where a child might be returning to a high-risk home, so let's vaccinate all the infants. For the record, I never have given that shot in the nursery, and many pediatricians now have no problem if parents elect to defer that vaccination until later. In the early 80s, I met the woman who would become my wife. Around 15 months after we met, 
Elise developed a mysterious illness that at that time had no name. She was suffering sudden severe headaches, overwhelming fatigue, constant short-term memory issues and often periods of severe brain fog, fibromyalgia muscle and joint symptoms, fevers, and swollen glands. She visited various doctors all around the country, but she remained miserable and undiagnosed. Her blood work came back positive for an astounding number of viruses, almost every virus she was tested for, excluding HIV. While she tested positive for Epstein-Barr, CMV, cytomegalovirus, HHV6, rubiola, and rubella, to name a few, it was rapidly obvious that while some of these titers might represent a potential virus to target, others were just false activation from a dysfunctional or misdirected, perhaps an unidentified virus or retrovirus, immune system.